0: Welcome to today's Bible study with Pastor Josh Tice. The next time you're in Las Vegas, we'd love to meet you in person at Southern Hills. If you happen to watch us regularly, please like and subscribe to our YouTube channel and consider sharing this video with a friend. You can support the ministries of Southern Hills by visiting southernhillslv.com and clicking the Give tab. Now, sit back, relax and get ready to learn how the Bible is relevant in your life today.
1: And you made it back to Southern Hills. Give yourself a round of applause. We are glad you're here. And we are ready to go. Studying Luke chapter number four to the end of the chapter today, part four of the sermon series, Dark Horses, Jesus Picks His Team. This is a five-week sermon series, and you found yourself at the perfect Sunday to show up at 10 o'clock. How many of you did not know it was 10 o'clock? How many of you, be honest? You're like, what time is it? How many of you had a hard time this morning? Raise your hand. How many of you had a hard time? How many of you didn't? You're a morning person. You're ready to go. You're like up and let's go. Let's go before everybody else. How many of you are like that? Raise your hand. Few of you, a few of you. Yeah, that makes sense. How many of you are not? Somebody dragged you here and you're like, why on this day of all days? And I'm even at church. Raise your hand. Let's admit it. There's several of you are like, that's a trap. That is a trap. This is great. Our children's pastor raised his hand. That's really, he's like, I don't know why I am here. I don't know at all. <laughs> What's up, Drew? Luke chapter number four is the text today. We're gonna to talk about hopelessness and hopeless cases in a sermon I'm entitling, uh, well, let's go ahead and get into it, Jesus and, the hope, uh, Jesus and the Hopeless. Today, it's not only Jesus and the Hopeless, but Jesus and the Homeless because Jesus actually addresses two homeless individuals and brings them to Jesus Christ. But you might be here today and say, well, I'm not homeless, so how does this apply to me? And the answer to that question is that Jesus specializes in all hopeless cases. Now, you might be saying to yourself, well, Pastor Josh, I'm not hopeless. Okay, that's great. Great for you. That means you don't need Jesus. Because what Jesus does is he focuses on hopeless people. Now here, I'm going to give you a little preview near the end of the sermon, a preview at the very end. It's called foreshadowing, and here's what's going to happen. Some of you might not feel hopeless in the moment and therefore not needing Jesus as desperately as others need Jesus, but in reality, you're going to see by the end of the sermon that you might be more hopeless without Christ than you realize. Because today, in today's sermon, Jesus interacts with three Hopeless individuals The first hopeless person is hopelessly sick They've got a disease that nobody else can heal The second one is hopelessly stuck They are stuck in their life situation And they cannot move forward And the third one that is hopeless I'm going to save that for the end You're going to get to it at the very end But I don't want to ruin the surprise of where we're going Let's go in and see the first person that Jesus deals with As a hopeless case Number one, Jesus deals with the hopelessly sick Jesus deals with the hopelessly sick Say number one with me, the hopelessly sick say it with me the hopelessly sick look at what it says in verses 12 through 13 and it came to pass when jesus was in a certain city that behold a man who was full of leprosy saw jesus and this man fell at the at his face and implored jesus saying lord if you are willing you can make me clean And then Jesus put out his hand and touched the man, saying, I am willing, be thou cleansed. And immediately the leprosy left the man. Now, it's a fascinating story, Jesus healing this man with leprosy. But it's less fascinating when we don't really understand what leprosy actually is. You see, leprosy is a very, very bad disease. Today, it's still around in the world. It's called Hansen's disease, but there have been cures that have been developed so that this virus can can go away. Still, it was a very dangerous, and still is a very dangerous disease without the cure. Uh, Leprosy, what exactly is it? Well, back in the days of antiquity, back when Jesus was alive, there was no cure, except for Jesus himself, as we're going to see. Leprosy was a skin disease, like a rash, and it would start as a rash, but it would quickly spread. It began in a stage I call innocuous or uh, unnoticeable. It was just a little rash, like a little white bump, like a pimple at first, that began to spread, and then that that rash began to grow, maybe uh, underneath your arm, or maybe on your side, or maybe on the back of your thigh. And you noticed it, and it scratched and itched, and then it began to spread a little bit. And it grew, but grew slowly. Today, there are actually photographs of what this looks like even today. I'm going to show you just early stages of what leprosy looks like. Just a normal rash, and then eventually, uh, this poor child in the developing world has contracted it. Leprosy. These are the early stages. and still affecting many I'm not going to show you photographs of advanced stages. I actually debated it. I debated whether or not I would expose you to what leprosy actually does to a person. If you want to know, you have a phone, Google it, and look, it's all over the internet. The reason I, I really debated, you say, oh, man, I'm really glad you didn't. We've got soft stomachs as Americans. We want to buy chicken, and we don't even know that it came from a bird. You know what I mean? Like, We don't like to know things i like to know it's out there, but we don't want to see it. You know what I mean? But the reason why I almost showed you stages of leprosy that are advanced is because when the original recipients of this book, when the original readers of the book of Luke saw leprosy and saw that Jesus healed a leper, they understood what a leper was. They knew what somebody with leprosy went through. They could picture it in their minds. It was absolutely filthy and disgusting, I'll explain why. Because it was a skin disease, it began innocuous, like I said, very inconspicuous, you wouldn't know it was there, but then it very quickly advanced to what I call stage two, and that is um, putrid, reviled, disgusting. Here's why, because once the disease got a hold of a certain part of your skin, the skin disease, it would start eating it. And the way it would eat it is it would begin to eat away at the flesh to the point where it began to rot on the human body. The same way a body decomposes when it's dead, your body, your skin begins to decompose not only the skin, but into the tissue and into the muscle and into the cartilage of different parts of your body so that you're walking around alive, but part of your body is dead. And so as it begins to decompose, you begin to stink. You begin to smell terrible. Everybody knew that you were coming. And in a day, in the days of antiquity, where hygiene was not what it is today, people could smell you coming before they saw you coming as a leper. And they knew it was a highly contagious disease. Think of a highly contagious virus, a disease that if you're around that person, if you get near that person, within six feet of that person, you're scared to death, that maybe what you'll get is you'll... You'll get infected, and now you'll understand leprosy. But now this disease not only grabs a hold of you, you go into that third stage, and we call that third stage isolation. Loneliness. Why? Because you're so very infectious, nobody can be around you. Nobody wants to touch you. Nobody's going to be within six feet, let alone six yards, let alone six miles from you. They want you away, get away. And so in their moments of isolation, in their quarantine, what would happen to a leper is they would be kicked out of their workplace. You can't come to work here on this fishing boat. You can't come to work here in this field. You can't come to work here in this marketplace because if you do, you're going to infect everybody. And so they would lose their job. Many of them would lose their homes. There were not basements to hide in or garages to go away or close the doors. These were, this was a rural community, many of these places, one-room homes. And so they were kicked out of their workplaces. They were kicked out of their homes. They were kicked out of their communities. This is what a leper colony is. A leper colony was a place where everybody with leprosy had to leave the villages, the cities, and the communities and go away. Go away to die on your own repulsive these people were, disgusting, open wounds, seeping sores, you would see them coming and you would want nothing. If somebody with leprosy 2,000 years ago came into a church this size, I promise you, I don't care how, how many of you, I'm a charitable person. I love everybody. I promise you, everyone in this room would look back and say, what is that person doing here? Saying, I would not, you would too. You would think to yourself, what are they doing here? They're gonna affect me. They're gonna affect my family. They're gonna affect my kids. My kids are in this building. And We pushed them to the sides and that's exactly what took place. They were not allowed to come into town. That's what makes this passage so fascinating. The Bible says Jesus was in a certain city and behold, a man with leprosy, a man full of leprosy. What is he doing in the city? This was dangerous for this guy to be showing up in the city. And when he did have to come to the city, he would have been wrapped up in all sorts of bandages and parts of him falling off, and that's what would happen. Your skin would fall to the point where your ner- it would affect your nerves. And so when you have nerve damage, you cannot feel things. And so the reason why oftentimes parts of the body of a leper would fall off is because they could not feel when they damaged it. You hit it with a rock, you didn't feel it, and so it got infected worse and it fell off. Or you're touching the fire and you didn't feel it, and so it would burn off, or you would lay down at night, and in these uh, not wealthy communities, there would be vermin who would come in, and while you sleep, if you had nerve endings, you could feel if something tried to eat or touch or nibble on you, but if you don't have nerve endings, you didn't know, and it would eat at you and literally eat parts of you. This is why many of them missing ears and missing noses and missing fingers and missing limbs. Picture this man walking into the community, into the city. And it was by law, a leper had to call out as he walked into a city, unclean, I'm unclean, get away, I'm a leper, get away, I'm a leper, I have to be here, I've got to get something. Unclean. And so now Jesus finds himself, this is a man not just with leprosy, this is a man, what does it say, full of leprosy. He's in the advanced stages. He's not a guy hiding a rash behind his leg. This is a guy, everybody knows he's coming. Everybody hates that he's coming. And then he meets the one person who loves him. Let me ask you a question before we move on. Have you met the one person who loves you even when everybody else despises you? His name is Jesus Christ. How many of you are thankful that Jesus Christ loves you? Can I get an amen? The Bible says that Jesus Christ arrives and the Bible says that Jesus does not do what everybody else does. Jesus reaches down and he touches the man with leprosy. What everybody else avoided, Jesus reached out and touched. You say, well, that's nice for this guy. I'm glad Jesus healed him. What does that have to do with me? In the Bible, leprosy equals sin. Leprosy equals sin. Say it with me. Leprosy equals sin. Say it again. Say it again. Leprosy equals sin. There was absolutely a man with real leprosy that Jesus really healed. But there is a metaphor that goes far deeper that affects you and I in this room. Leprosy equals sin. Say it with me. Leprosy equals sin. You have to understand what sin does to the body, more so what sin does to the soul is very similar to what leprosy does with the body. You see, sin is very innocuous at the beginning, right? It's a little rash. You hide behind your thigh. You put on pants and nobody knows you've got that sin. You've got this innocuous kind of secret little thing that's part of your life and it's not that big of a deal and and nobody really knows, but then sin it blossoms in your life. It's just a little bit of greed. It's just a little bit of lust. It's just a little bit of anger. It's just a little bit of wrath. It's just a little bit of sin. And this sin comes inside of you and it begins to eat you from the inside out. This sin begins to affect not only you, though it was originally innocuous, eventually it begins to affect the people around you. That which was once secret has now become noticeable, and now the people around you have begun to see. Why is this person so bitter? Why is this person so angry? Why is this person so wrathful? Why is this person so lustful? Why are they so greedy? Why do they use people? Why are they so mean to people? They're so violent all the time. They're using these things that are destroying them. Why is this person this way? And the little secret eventually develops to where you go from stage one, innocuous, To stage two, putrid to everybody around you, which leads to isolation, loneliness, quarantine. Get away from us. And now you're at the point in your life, maybe with your sin, where you kind of got to walk around unclean, unclean. Some of you are sitting there thinking to yourself, I'm glad I don't have these problems. And that's because your sin is pride. And you stink to everybody around you. And you don't notice your own scent, and so I'm calling out for you. Unclean. You're unclean. Who do you think you are, Josh, talking to me this way? I'm one of you. I've been infected with sin since I was a child. I've carried the burden of of, of sin and leprosy eating at me from the inside out since I was a child. But there was a day in my life that I realized this sin was leading me to be repulsive to others and isolated from others, that I came to Jesus Christ and I said, I can't let my soul be this way anymore. Will you heal me? And though I was hopeless, he is the one who specializes in hopeless cases. I think there are three kinds of people in the room as it relates to sin and sickness. I think the first type of person is the type of person who once was filled with sin and Jesus Christ has saved you from your sin. And what you need to do is thank Jesus. Can I get an amen? Amen. How many of you like me today? You say, Pastor Josh, man, I know exactly what that's like. I was once full of sin and Jesus saved me. If that's you, say amen. amen. What you need to do is thank Jesus. Some of you, here's a second type of person. Some of you, you're just coming to the realization that you're filled with sin. You're just realizing now that your sin is not a joke before God. The same way we view leprosy is the way God views your sin. It is putrid to him. He hates it. It smells terrible to him because it's hurting you and it's hurting everybody around you. And he still loves you enough that he wants to reach down and touch you. And you're just realizing this. That is you're waking up to the gospel truth that God loves you even in spite of your sin. And right now, you need to seek Jesus. Some of you need to thank Jesus for what he did. Some of you need to seek Jesus because of what you did. Friend, have you received Christ as your savior? Jesus deals with hopeless cases. Number one, we talk about the hopelessly sick. Number two, let's talk about the hopelessly stuck. What is this hopelessly stuck person, Pastor Josh? Some of you might right now, you might be sitting there thinking, man, Josh, I I wish I have a friend, pastor. I wish I had, I wish my friend was here to hear that first part of the sermon. I mean, pastor, I gotta tell you, they are hopeless. My friend, my coworker, my neighbor, my relative. I got somebody, a roommate, oh my word, pastor, I wish they were here because they are so hopelessly sick. They need Jesus. Great point, I'm glad you acknowledge that. Why didn't you bring them? No, but like really, like if you understand that you were hopelessly sick and Jesus saved you, now you have a friend who's hopelessly stuck and you're thinking to yourself, man, they should hear this. Why don't you bring them? Why don't you bring them? That's exactly what we see in this next story. Look, look, the story goes on. Now, it happened on a certain day that as Jesus was teaching, that there was Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting by. Note that, note that, Pharisees and scribes. We're going to come back to them in point number three. They're sitting by who had come out from the town of Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem spying on Jesus. They were all there kind of trying to keep an eye on Jesus. They were spying on him, you know. And the power of the Lord was present to heal them. Notice this. The power of God was present to heal everybody. Everybody needs the healing of God. Let me say it again. Let me say it again. Everybody needs the healing of God. For those sitting there thinking that's true, a lot of people around here need the healing of God. Everybody needs the healing of God. Can I get an amen? And it's available, verse 18. Then behold, men brought on a bed a man who was paralyzed. The first person, who was hopeless and homeless, was so because of their leprosy. The second one, who was hopeless and probably homeless, was so because they were paralyzed. They were, we would today call it disabled. He could not walk. And the Bible said he had some friends that brought the paralyzed man, whom sought to bring them before, to lay him before Jesus, Understand what it would have been like to be paralyzed in this day and age. Always a tragedy. Always a sad thing. Some of my dearest friends are permanently disabled. But imagine 2,000 years ago in the days of antiquity, no wheelchair. No disability access to places. No social services. There was no social safety net. Do you understand in the Roman Empire, there was no social safety net to take care of people who could not take care of themselves. By the way, aren't you thankful we live in a society that cares for those who cannot care for themselves? Can I get an amen? That's a good thing we live in a society that way. But not in this society. They were literally without hope. The only thing that this guy had, I love this, the only thing this guy had was four friends who were willing to do whatever it took to bring him to Jesus. Do you know anybody that's hopeless? Hopelessly stuck in their addiction? Hopelessly stuck? Hopelessly stuck in the abuse from the past? Hopelessly stuck? Hopelessly stuck in fear? Hopelessly stuck in stress? Hopelessly stuck in anxiety? Listen, my friend, I believe what's happening right now is God himself is putting on your heart the face or name of somebody you know that is hopelessly stuck. Here's my question. What are you willing to do to get them to Jesus? You say, what do you mean? I, I kinda, you know, every once in a while as a friend, I kinda like mention God. I'm like, oh God, what a great day. And, and they should know. <laughs> they should know from that that Jesus Christ died upon the cross for their sins, was buried, rose from the grave, and offered salvation to everyone who freely receives it. All they have to do is call upon him right now and they'll be saved. Real question. Do you actually care about that coworker, that friend, that neighbor, that relative? This is what this hopeless man, hopelessly stuck. Bible says in verse 19, and when they could not find how they might bring him in. See, Jesus was in a house teaching. The gospel of Mark tells us that Jesus was in a house teaching and the crowd was so big that by the time they brought their friend and picture, they're picking him up like on a, like a stretcher and they're bringing him, and they can't get in the house. They're like, what are we gonna do? The Bible says that they went into the tiling, uh, they went on top of the house to the tiling in the midst of Jesus. Uh, The Gospel of Mark says that they went on top of the house and they started breaking through the tiles and they started cracking through the roof itself. Imagine, I'm in here teaching and I'm helping people, right? We're all studying the Bible and somebody starts breaking through the roof to get in. Can you imagine? That's what these people are doing. And they take the bed and they lower the bed down in front of Jesus and the whole place is stopping and watching. They were willing to do whatever it took to bring their friend to Jesus. Here's my question again. What are you willing to do? Say, but if I say something, I might be embarrassed. If you don't say something, they might go to hell. Bring them to church. If you don't know what to say, I'll say it. You know, I do every Sunday to them about their faith if if you're an advanced christian share your faith tell them death burial resurrection of jesus christ they can be saved all you have to do to be saved is repent of your sin and receive jesus and you're born again you're saved that's it that's all it takes now notice what jesus does i love this because he specializes in hopeless cases when jesus saw their faith he said to them man your sins are forgiven you I love this. Guy comes down. Jesus looks around and says, man, rise up and walk. Is that what he says? Yes or no? It's not what he says. Not at first. What does he say? You know why he forgives his sins rather than healing him and making him walk is because Jesus knew what his real problem was. Do you know what your real problem is here today? Your real problem is not the physical thing that you're stressing out over. Your real problem, if you've never been born again, is the sins that are dragging you to hell. And it could be that God has allowed some of those problems in your life to draw you to a place of need where you're like, I need Jesus. And then Jesus is going to say, your sins are forgiven. By the way, I'll also heal you. Does it make sense? Could it be possible that in the, in, the, in the life of some of your friends and coworkers, neighbors, relatives, that God has allowed some things in their life so that they they feel a little bit of a desperation and you're like, man, you want help with that? Our church can help with that, come on in. And they're coming in thinking about their their financial problem or their relationship problem or they're thinking about their their image problem, whatever it is, they're coming in and they're seeking help. and, And we come and say, hey, guess what? Jesus Christ can forgive all your sins if you repent and receive Christ. They'll be saved, they'll be saved, they'll be saved. Oh friend, number one today, I love that Jesus specializes in the hopelessly sick. Number two, the hopelessly stuck. And number three, number three, Here's the third one, I told you as a surprise at the end. Jesus specializes in the hopelessly religious. Say the hopelessly religious, say it with me. The hopelessly religious. Oh, this point's gonna be fun to teach. Because some of you in this room are hopelessly sick, some of you are hopelessly stuck, and some of you are hopelessly religious. And what's worse about you than the other two is they know there's a problem. You don't. You are so stuck on yourself. You say, why are you talking so blunt to us and compassionate to the others? Because exactly the way Jesus worked. Jesus was so compassionate to the sick and the stuck, but he spoke very bluntly to the religious. There's a third group of people here, not just the sick and the stuck. There was the hopelessly religious. Oh, some are so hopelessly religious they don't even recognize the power of God when they see it. Look at what it says in verse 21. The scribes and the Pharisees, there they are, these very religious people. The religious elite of the day, better than you, better than you ever were. God help you. I have a friend who watches from London, uh, from England, and he says, every time you talk about a snob, you use an English accent. (laughs) I said, that's true, yes, accurate, yeah, there's a reason, there's a reason. The scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Can you picture them there? Like they're sitting there, they've got all their royal garb on, and they're holy men, and they've got their big hats, and they're, they're sitting there, and they've got their special priestly garments, and they're sitting there watching this whole thing, and they're like, Who does he think he is? Jesus Blossom me. <laughs> and then they ask a good question Who can forgive sins but God? Great question. Got something for you. Jesus forgives sins because he is God. Jesus is God. Now, if you have a problem with that, you're either a demon or, (laughs) friend, you've been trained improperly by a religion. Some religion told you he's a nice guy, he's a nice prophet, he's one of these, the son of, he's the son of God. No, he is God himself. We're gonna see this in this passage. Jesus is God. Now, let me just stop before I move on, verse 22, and and let's talk about Phariseeism, because some of us, when we read the Bible and we see the Pharisees, we're like, oh, man, the Pharisees, they're messed up. Those are the ones who don't like Jesus, the enemies of Jesus. I hate the Pharisees. That's the way it works first. Like, once you become a Christian, you read the Bible, and you're like, I love Jesus. Oh, disciples, I'm like one of the disciples. And then you start following Jesus, and you're like, Pharisees, terrible. Hate the Pharisees. They're the bad guys. And then if you're like me, So this is what happened to me in my life. The more I read the Bible, the more I was like, yeah, that's right, these Pharisees. That's right, they're terrible. They're like a bunch of wicked sinners. And the more I read the Bible, the more I began to realize I'm the Pharisee. If you've been following Jesus and you haven't got to that point yet, you're watching online, you haven't got to the point where you realize you're the Pharisee, this might be your moment. It's a second coming to Jesus here. Marks of a Pharisee, let me give them to you. You say, what's, what's, what's a Pharisee like? Here's marks of a Pharisee. Number one, preference equals doctrine. For a Pharisee, they prefer things a certain way. You dress a certain way, you talk a certain way, you say it, use the right words. You're around the right kind of people. And if you don't do all of their preferences, then you have disavowed the faith. So if you come from different religious backgrounds, for example, I'm about to, I'm, I'm about to critique a lot of religious backgrounds here, Are you ready? All right, watch, this is when people get up and go, here we go, if you, if, I, I grew up very religious. If you grew up Roman Catholic, there's a preferences, some of them have a preference of like the beads, right? The rosary, they prefer to remember their prayers by having beads, nothing wrong with that. But their preferences become part of their doctrine for some, if you don't have the beads, you're not really praying. That's Phariseeism. That's your preference. That's not doctrine. It's not in the Bible. Does that make sense? I prefer to go into a dark room and talk to a creepy guy and confess all my sins to him. <laughs> okay. That's a preference that you enjoy, but it's not in the Bible. Preference doesn't equal doctrine. That make sense? Ruffling some feathers. Here we go. All right. It's, it's not over. I'm about to come for you Baptists. Okay. All right. Your assembly of God, Church of Christ, Charismatic, Pentecostal. Some of the preferences there is like uh, speaking in tongues, right? If you don't speak in tongues like I speak in tongues, then maybe you don't even know God. No, that's your preference, and you've equated it with doctrine. You've become a Pharisee. You've become a Pharisee. That's what's happening. The Bible doesn't say that everybody's speaking in tongues. In fact, Paul said quite the opposite. He said not everybody does. Some of you, when it comes to your worship style, right? You love to worship Jesus and you're just out there. I'm I'm very exuberant in my worship. I love to jump and I put my hands up and I'm singing to Jesus. But some of you are so exuberant in your worship, you look down upon others who don't jump around and hold their hands up. Some of you are so very calm in your worship, you're looking down on somebody who shouts out to God. Phariseeism. The Bible doesn't say anything about that as doctrine. That's your preference. Baptists. Come on. Some of you (laughs) are like, Uh, I got a couple of you out there like, okay, where are you going with this? (laughs) Some of you prefer to dress up when you come to church, like really dress up, right? Like tuxedo would be like pretty good, right? And you not only prefer it, you believe that you you found a Bible verse, you've twisted it out of scripture and you've said things like, well, I just like to present my best to God and most people don't. (laughs) You're acting like a Pharisee. Dress up if you want but don't hold your preference as doctrine, music. I like this church pastor, but I gotta tell you, I like the church, I don't like, I'm, you know, with the drums, you know what I mean? The Bible says, thou shalt notest have a drum in thy church, <laughs> right? You're a Pharisee. I love you, I love you, because God loves Pharisees, Jesus does too. You're a Pharisee, you need to get over it. You got your preference, which is cool. You do you, bro, as they say. But you can't demand your preferences as doctrine. Bible versions, for years, for years. I, I literally believe there was only one Bible version for English speaking people. It's fine if you have a Bible version you prefer, but to demand your Bible version upon everybody else when the Bible says nothing about it and then taking Bible passages out of context to twist it to your preference and call it doctrine, Phariseeism, it's Phariseeism. You're acting like the enemy of Jesus here. So number one, mark of a Pharisee, preference equals doctrine. Number two, number two, judgmental self-righteousness. The next step is that I'm better than everybody else. I understand that I'm a sinner, but my sins in comparison to yours are nothing. You're filthy. <laughs> Disgusting people. This is where Christians are constantly rightfully accused in our secular society. We love to look out down our nose, point off, our fingers, look at your wicked ways. <laughs> and the fact is, there's all sorts of sin in our own congregation, in our own lives. Judgmental self-righteousness, that's, that's exactly who the Pharisees were. Why? Because, well, you don't follow our preferences and you don't follow everything that we do, and so judgmental self-righteousness. Third sign, mark of a Pharisee. Number 3 hyperseparatism. Hyperseparatism means this. If you don't agree with me on my doctrine and self-righteousness, I'm done with you. I'm done with you. I act like you don't exist. Hyper-separatism, they will be sh- you will be shunned. By the way, some of you have experienced being shunned because you no longer go to Church of Christ. You no longer go to the Mormon Church. You no longer go to the Catholic Church. You've been shunned because of these other things. They separate, that's Phariseism. it's Phariseism. I, I'm not picking on anybody, that's why I'm picking on all faiths here, but we see this with the Amish, right? They've got very particular ways, they've catechized as doctrine, and if you don't follow, the family doesn't follow, they, what do they do? They shun, you're not allowed to be part of the family of the community anymore. It's Phariseeism, which leads to number four, mark of a Pharisee, fear of men. Because separation is so extreme, they're terrified of this judgmentalism and separation, so what happens with Pharisees is they become very secretive about their life, and they hide themselves so that nobody knows what they're really doing, constantly making sure that nobody around really knows what I believe and what I think and what I'm doing, constant. It's very scary. The Bible says the fear of men is a trap. And that leads finally, mark of a Pharisee, number five: They rarely recognize the work of Jesus. They just can't see it anymore. They can see religion. They can see that religion versus that religion and your doctrine versus my doctrine, but when Jesus does something miraculous, it's really hard for them to see it. You say, well, pastor, it sounds like these Pharisees are pretty um, hopeless. Correct, absolutely, but guess what? I know somebody who, who specializes in hopeless cases. Isn't it beautiful that Jesus doesn't just love the sick and the stuck, but he also loves the religious. Can I get an amen? Look, this is what happens. I love this part of the story, verse 22 through 26. But when Jesus perceived their thoughts, I love this. Jesus doesn't look at them and he, he knows what they're thinking. He doesn't say, get out of here, you wicked sinners, you religious, self-righteous hypocrites, you Pharisees. He doesn't. He actually tries to love them. He answered and said to them, why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is it easier to say your sins are forgiven you or rise up and walk, but that you may know that the son of man has power on earth to forgive sins. Jesus said to the man who was paralyzed, I say unto you, rise up and take up your bed and go to your house. In this very moment for the Pharisee, he proves that he is God. I can just picture this. Jesus is looking right there at the Pharisee. And as he's doing so, he's talking about the paralyzed man. The kids would call this baller. He is so baller in this moment. This is, straight, this is gangsta, okay? This is what's going on. Jesus looks the guy in the eye and says, why are you reasoning your heart? You think I can't forgive sins? Do you want me to just make this guy rise up and walk? Watch this. So that you know that I can forgive sins, I'll also make this paralyzed man walk. Rise up and walk. <laughs> and the dude gets up and walks. Like what would that moment be like? Like you got, if you're one of the disciples, you're like, oh no, oh no. <laughs> Right? Why is Jesus doing this? Because he doesn't just like the sinner, he likes the self-righteous. He doesn't just love the sinner, he loves the self-righteous. Jesus is here to save everybody, thank God. Thank God because he saved me. Verse 25, immediately he rose up before them, took what had been lying on and departed to his own house, glorifying God. And look at what it says in verse 26, and they were all amazed. What does the word say? Does it say, and some were amazed? Does it say, a few of them were amazed? Does it say, they were all amazed except for the Pharisees who will forever be the enemies of Jesus? Is that what it says? It says, they were all amazed and they were all glorified God and they were filled with a fear and they said, We've seen a strange thing today. You want to see stranger things? Watch Jesus. Can I get an amen right there? <laughs> That's like a four year old reference. Right there it is. All right. Here's the point. Jesus Christ does what? He saves even the Pharisee. I looked it up. Matthew, Mark, Luke have all the same story. And in all three gospel accounts, the Bible says all of them glorified God, which includes the Pharisees. I know we talk a lot about Jesus saving sinners and sick people and Jesus saving stuck people. And can I tell you this, friend? If you're, if you're lucky enough to get woken up to the fact that you've been a religious hypocrite like I was, and sometimes still am, if you're lucky enough to wake up to the fact that you think yourself so better than everybody else and, and God by his grace is willing to reach down in love and mercy and touch you, man, you better be smart enough to receive that salvation, to receive that forgiveness and change your ways because he specializes in hopeless cases, including yours. Let's bow in prayer. Father, I thank you. I thank you because so many years ago, you were patient with me. I was so judgmental, so hypocritical, so wrong. My path was not the path of many. My path though was the path of self-righteousness. And I'm so thankful that not only did you save fishermen and farmers, you also saved Pharisees. I pray that you would save them today. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray.
0: Amen. Thank you for watching Josh Tice's most recent Bible sermon. If you think of someone who may enjoy this one, go ahead and send it or post it today. If you're ever in Las Vegas on Sunday, we'd love for you to stop by Southern Hills and see us in person. If you benefit from this virtual ministry, we'd also like to encourage you to support our gospel efforts by sending a donation to the ministries of Southern Hills. You can do so by visiting SouthernHillsLV.com and clicking the Give tab.